Well, church family, as we continue on in our worship service and in a moment we go to God's word in the sermon, a reminder that we are in a sermon series called Bonfire with the Sages. And in the sermon series, uh, I've been wearing literally the same shirt. I'm going to for the entirety of the sermon series uh, as a reminder to me and to you of the intimacy of the relational aspect to the the casualness of what it is like around a bonfire, having a conversation with someone else. Uh, you might have heard, if, you, if you've been with us, that this shirt is older than I am. It was given to me by my grandfather when I was younger. This wool Pendleton, uh, perhaps over 50-year-old shirt has, has held up really well. And when I wear it, I not only think of him and the wisdom that he passed down to me as a simple man of faith, a World War II vet uh, is somebody who uh, lived a remarkable life. But also, when I wear this shirt, it reminds me of the memories that I've made while I've worn it. Because often I wear this shirt either camping or around a bonfire. Whether that's out camping, whether that's traveling on a mission trip somewhere in the world, uh, or on vacation, for example, or just being in the backyard of a friend's home around a bonfire. Now, bonfires, in my experience, you know, they're altogether different of an experience and different of an environment than, of course, a, you know, a video conference call. Uh, being around a bonfire is so much different than sitting in an uh, academic lecture hall. Being around a bonfire is so different, uh, you know, than just, uh, you know, even sitting around a family room. There's something about that experience outside where you're really not looking at your watch, where the wood has been stacked and lit and burning, whereas the warmth of the fire uh, emanates and radiates off that bonfire, there is a warmth and a connection that I've experienced in conversations with friends and family members. And I can think about times in my life in which hours have gone by you know, where we add more logs to the fire because in that environment, there is a willingness to go deeper in relationship. And so with that image in mind, we are approaching some sages of Scripture, heroes of the faith, people that we've studied in our lives, that we've read about in our lives, that we've come to know through uh, the reading of uh, Scripture or through sermons in our lives, but what we're doing is we are approaching these individuals, prayerfully asking God, would you guide us in a conversation with them as we sit down, as we connect with them, you know, face to face in our minds, guided by scripture, asking questions. And in each of these sermons, we've been asking the same three questions to an individual character in scripture. If you've missed any of them, you can get caught up, of course. Go to our YouTube channel, search Bonfire with the Sages once you go to Bel Air Church, our channel on YouTube, and you can get caught up in some of these, these characters that we've studied. Now, what I want to do as we get to today's characters, I, I want to say some, some things pastorally. You know, there's 66 books of the Bible 
comprised of both the Old Testament, or as I refer to them as the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and the New Testament. The 66 books of the Bible were written by over 40 authors, inspired by the Spirit of God, compiled over 1,600 years. And as we come to this book of the Bible, the book of Esther, it is altogether unique because the book of Esther not once speaks about God, nor does God speak audibly. Again, the only book in all of scripture that has no mention of God. And yet, why is it included in scripture? Well, a great reminder that when it seems like God is silent, God is actually actively working. And in a moment, we're gonna, well, more than a moment, in a bit of time, we're gonna get to that bonfire and we're gonna have a conversation with Esther. And I'm gonna ask her the same three questions that I've asked Abraham and Joseph and and Moses and others throughout this series. But before I get to this bonfire, I wanna give you like a complete overview of her life as it's recorded in the book of Esther. And I literally am gonna walk through in a high level view just to kind of, if you don't yet know, introduce you to who this Esther character is as revealed in scripture. Because I need you to know this, while you know, the book of Esther, it doesn't mention God, nor does God even speak audibly. Esther's a character. Her cousin Mordecai is a character. There is a lot of moral ambiguity, in fact, that happens in this book of the Bible. They're not perfect by any means. There are some things that Esther does. There are some things that Mordecai does that actually go against God's law. And yet we're going to discover that God continues to use even imperfect people to accomplish God's purposes. Another just pastoral note, one of the things that I appreciate about uh, the book of Esther, like other books of the Bible, is that it's not just shiny and neat and glossy. As I go through the overview of this book of the Bible, there's going to be some events that you're going to hear about that are actually recorded, not just in Scripture, but are actually recorded in the history books, in secular history books. In fact, this context of this moment is quite some time after the Babylonian Empire has overwhelmed and overrun the Jewish people. And we are introduced to a character right in the first verse, King Xerxes. You know, if you've ever seen the movie 300, King Xerxes, the Persian king, it's all about him. And you can read about King Xerxes in the history books, his queen Vashti in the history books. And we get this historical moment that we get into and it's pretty intense. And there's, there's things that you might hear as I just kind of do this high level overview that you think, my goodness, this is in the Bible. And I've got to say pastorally why I appreciate that is because God's word enters into the reality of the human experience. If the Bible was only roses and cherries on top, if it was only rainbows and, and nice, you know, sweet, happy things, it actually wouldn't relate to our human experience 
our human experience where there, there's loss, where there's deceit, where there's division, where there's the objectification of the other, where there's oppression. And so whatever you're going through, whatever you see on the news right now, you know, whatever uh, you might be experiencing in your life, even if you feel like God is silent in your own life, even if you feel like God is absent when you look out on the events of history that are unfolding before us in this nation around the world, what a great reminder the book of Esther reminds us that God is actively at work. All right, so again, before we get to the bonfire, before I ask those questions to Esther, I just want to do an overview of Esther's life. And you could read this later. Uh, The book of Esther, it's got 10 chapters. And it begins talking about this king, King Xerxes, this this king of the Babylonian empire. And he throws a banquet for 180 days straight. This dude could party. I mean, I've been to some parties. I've heard about some parties. I've never heard about or been to a party that lasted for 180 days. It was the epitome of of hedonism, of opulence. And once that party ends, get this, you can read about it in uh, chapter one, he throws another party. So after the 180s of partying is done, he says, okay, a new party begins and it's gonna last for seven days. And at the end of those seven days, his queen, Queen Vashti, refuses to come and celebrate with him. I don't blame her. After 187 days, she finally says, enough is enough. And that angers King Xerxes. And so what does he do? He disposes of her. And he sets a decree over the whole Babylonian empire that every woman in the Babylonian empire needs to honor her husband. I mean, tremendous brokenness is happening in this society. And then we get to chapter 2. And the king kind of realizes, well, now I've just, you know, thrown away my queen. Now what am I going to do? And so what does he do? He holds a beauty pageant that lasts for 12 months straight. This guy's crazy. I mean, what a different culture. And in the midst of this beauty pageant, we are introduced to a Jewish woman, not a Persian woman, a Jewish woman by the name of Esther. And she is brought forward to be part of this beauty pageant. We don't know if this is against her wishes or not. And she catches the eye of King Xerxes. And so we find as we read through the book of Esther, that Esther then is chosen in chapter two to be the queen. And yet she hides her identity. She doesn't say that she's Jewish. And now that she's queen, her cousin Mordecai happens to just stumble upon overhearing a plot to kill the king. There's two people who are plotting against this king. I mean, who knows what that society was like, but apparently there was two that wanted to kill the king. And so he overhears it. He shares that with his cousin, Esther. Esther tells her husband, the king, and they discover the plot. They put to death those two and they write down those events in the history books. Now, remember that for later. But once we get to Esther chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character in the story, this, this guy named Haman. He's not Persian. He's not Jewish. He is a descendant of the Canaanites. 
and he rises to power. King Xerxes kind of puts him in charge of everything. He's his second in command. He's filled with tremendous pride, tremendous arrogance. And what happens is wherever he goes, people bow down and worship him. The only problem is, as we discover in chapter three, is that as he is moving about, he notices that there's one person who doesn't bow down and worship him, and it's Mordecai, the Jewish cousin of Esther, the queen. And so Haman is filled with rage. And you know what he does? He goes to the king and he convinces the king to set a decree to wipe out all the Jewish people in all of the Babylonian empire. And so King Xerxes, who seems to be constantly drinking throughout this book of the Bible, kind of agrees to it, not knowing that his wife, the queen, is part of the Jewish people. And then they have to make a decision on when they're going to have this, this mass genocide event. And so what do they do? They, they cast lots. The Hebrew word is pur, P-U-R. Kind of modern-day culture, it's, 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 a, it's a dice. And they, and they roll the dice. And what seems to be this kind of random event becomes the centerpiece, becomes a foreshadow of one of the greatest acts of salvation the world has ever seen. But they roll the dice and a date is set and they announce the date to all the Babylonian empire of when this event is going to occur, but it's, it's many months out. And so you can imagine there is chaos in the city. It doesn't happen now. It's going to happen in that future place. So what do you do waiting for that day? There's chaos in the city. Then you get to chapter four. Mordecai is overwhelmed. Esther is overwhelmed. As part of the Jewish people, they, they are in mourning. And then there's this amazing conversation that happens between the cousins, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai comes up to Esther and says, perhaps this is the reason why you have been made queen for such a time as this. Is it possible that you can go before the king and stop what he is doing? But Esther, the queen knows that it is actually illegal. It is forbidden for her to approach the king uninvited. And she knows that it's possibly at the penalty of, of death. She might lose her life. So she has this choice. And so what does she do? She says to her cousin Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. We must save the nation of Israel. We must save the people. And so what does she do? She dresses up. You can read about this in Esther 5. And she stands just outside the court of the king. And she waits. Her life hangs in the balance. And the king notices her. He invites her in. She's alive. And he says, what can I do? And she says, I want to throw a banquet 
and they throw a banquet. King Xerxes comes, Haman comes, there's, there's tons of drinking. And you can read about this again in chapter five. And the king says, so what is it you want? And she says, I want there to be another banquet. So would you come back then? She throws a banquet just to invite them to another banquet. I mean, these people could party, right? And then we find something very fascinating. As Haman leaves this first banquet, as he is leaving filled with, you know, great joy, high spirits, things are going great, notices Mordecai. And as he passes by Mordecai, what happens? Mordecai doesn't bow down again and doesn't worship him. And now Haman is, is filled with rage and he goes back and he doesn't want to wait for the future day where all the Jewish people would be destroyed. And he says to his attendants, I want you to build the gallows so high up in the air and I want you to take care of Mordecai. Now here's what's fascinating. Again, God has not once spoken in this book. There's no mention of God in this book. And then we get to chapter six of Esther. And it says this, uh, Esther chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. This little detail, this little tiny detail. The king couldn't sleep. No mention of God. God is not speaking. And yet something happens that causes him to not be able to sleep at all. Could it be that God is working powerfully behind the scenes because it goes on in chapter six and it says that because he couldn't sleep, he asked his attendants to come and read to him. Well, what book did they read to him? He asked them to read the history of his kingdom. I mean, crazy nighttime reading, right? And as they're reading this history of his kingdom, they get to the place where many, 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 many months ago, a plot was discovered where two people were about to kill the king. And the king remembers in that moment that event and discovers in the history books that it wasn't just the queen who had this idea, who had this discovery, but it was actually Mordecai. And so he remembers it is Mordecai who saved his life. And then the next morning happens. This is crazy. Chapter six, the king, King Xerxes, calls Haman. You know, again, Haman has set into motion the killing of Mordecai. Not to wait many months from now, but he's about to do it. And the king says to Haman, his second in charge, he says, now how should we honor the one whom the king wishes to honor? And again, you can read about this in chapter six. And Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. And so what does he do? He says, well, how would we honor the one whom the king wishes to honor? Well, you'd, you'd put a nice robe on him, put a, a royal crown on him, a royal signet. You'd put him on a horse and you'd parade him through the streets so that all can bow down and all can worship him. He thinks it's all about him. And so what does the king say? He says, I want you to do that for Mordecai. And there's this great reversal. This is the hinge to the entire book, the entire history of Esther. Haman in his ascent and Mordecai in his descent have now been reversed. And we begin to see the descent of Haman and the ascent of Mordecai. And so what happens next? Haman, filled with so much 
pride formerly is now humiliated. He literally has to clothe Mordecai with all this royal imagery, puts him on a horse, and he is the one that has to lead him on a horse around all the different villages and precincts and cities so the people can bow down and worship not him, Haman, but Mordecai. Then what happens next? The banquet happens. And this is in Esther chapter 7. This remarkable moment in which the queen at this second banquet with King Xerxes, with Haman there, Queen Esther approaches the king and she reveals her Jewish identity for the first time at risk of her own life. Remember, the the decree that the king had put in motion has already stood, it already stands, it already exists, this future day where all the nation of Israel is going to be wiped out. And she says, I'm a Jewish woman, your wife, the queen. And my people will perish. My people will be destroyed. And so the king says, who would do this? He doesn't even remember how the decree came about and the finger is pointed at Haman. And it leads to Haman's death in the exact same manner that Haman had set up for Mordecai. I mean, I'm telling you, this, this book is crazy, but it reminds me of the, the brokenness of this world. And it seems like though God is absent, God is powerfully moving throughout. We then get to chapter eight, these last three chapters of Esther, before we get to the bonfire and have a conversation with her. There's this moment where, again, the queen comes to the king And she knows that the king cannot reverse his own decree. And so she asked that there would be another decree made, that the Jewish people would be allowed to simply defend themselves. And so the date comes. Finally, the date that the the pur, the P-U-R, the dice that was rolled, that date on the calendar finally comes. And it's not the Jewish people who are destroyed, but it is their attackers who ultimately perish. And as a result, there is this great celebration. And they institute a two-day feast. And they call it Purim. P-U-R-I-M. And they set it as a remembrance of how God's people were going to perish and now how they are alive. Formerly dead, they're now alive. They've been rescued from death the whole of the nation of Israel, all of God's people, they were due to die and now they are alive. And the book simply ends with Mordecai now ascending to the place that Haman was in and there's great celebration that the Jewish people who were gonna get killed are now alive. And then just the book ends. So what do we make of this? Again, before we get to the bonfire, before I ask some questions to Esther, I just want to say how fascinating, again, just to, to repeat and just to drill this home. So much brokenness in this book. You could say there's a lot of sin that's committed, not just by people who don't believe in God, but also by some of the Jewish people. There is what seems to be the silence of God. You have God never speaking. God has never spoken about. And yet something is going on. And why would God include this? is one of the 66 books of the Bible. Of course, we know that it is inspired by the Spirit of God. The Word of God is God-breathed. 
And yet with that big background, with that big overview, which now hopefully you know a little bit more about this character, Esther, I want to invite us all to sit down at the bonfire. I want us to, in our imagination, led by the Spirit of God, just, you know, to pull up a chair. In the front row, you're not in the second or third, you're on the outside looking in. I want you to know that you've been invited to this bonfire. And I want you to imagine that we're not going back in time into the, you know, the narrative of this, but we're actually going to a bonfire in the presence of God in, in, in eternity. We have the fullness of all of history before us. And as we, in that place, ask some questions to Esther, what an opportunity to imagine what she might say. So, okay, here we are. We're we're at this bonfire asking the first of the three questions to Esther. And so with that background, Esther, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to ask you, what did God call you to take up? And immediately she looks and she says, it was courage. It was courage. I want you to imagine, we hear her saying, what it would be like for a woman in the Babylonian Empire, with King Xerxes at the helm, he was already quickly disposed of his former queen who had a beauty pageant that lasted for 12 months, who chose me, who with the wrong look, the wrong glance, the wrong word said could not only cast me away, could actually put me to death. Over and above that has now put a decree into motion that all of the nation of Israel, all of God's people, all, all of us, myself included, would be put to death that I am supposed to, and I only, my cousin tells me, I'm the only one who can go before the king and undo this, this devastation that's been put into motion. I knew in that moment that the only way I could move forward is if I had courage. It was the only way. There was no trickery that could make it happen. Uh, there was no sweetness that can make it happen. It required from the death of my soul, the death of my being, a courage that I had never experienced in my life. And when Mordecai said that to me and he kept on referencing the Jewish people, though I had married a Babylonian king, I was reminded of my childhood. I was reminded of all the stories of our ancestors, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, I was reminded of all the stories that I've been told growing up of Moses, of Joshua, of David, of Solomon. When Mordecai was having that conversation with me saying, perhaps you have been called to be queen for such a time as this. I remembered my youth. I remembered how my parents had poured into me the purposes of God, the promises of God. And in the midst of all the debauchery, all the things that were going on in, in my life at that moment, in the Babylonian empire, there was, this, there was this sense that God was saying, I need you now. I thought about Isaiah, whom I had heard about in my youth, whom God had said about him, whom shall I send? Whom shall go before me? And I, I recalled from my youth how my parents would say that, the prophet Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And so, yes, you asked me the question, you know, what, what did God call me to pick up? It was courage. 
I wanted to be in the line of the Isaiahs, the Davids, the Moseses, the Jacobs, the Isaacs, the Abrahams. A willingness to go, a willingness to be obedient, a willingness to step forward. It was courage that God asked me to pick up. And so as I'm through hearing this response from Esther, I ask her a second question. Okay, if God called you to pick up courage, what did it cost you to lay down? And she said, it was my life. When Mordecai, my cousin, asked me to go before the, the king to, to petition for the release of my people, I knew that not only was I not allowed to come unannounced, but also if I came forward, I was eventually going to have to reveal that I was a Jewish woman myself. It was this double problem. And I realized that if I go, I have to lay down my life. That if I'm going to step forward and courage, the cost, the possible cost would be my life. And so in that moment, I weighed the two. Do I step forward and save my people? Or do I preserve my own life and somehow try to withhold my identity? And it was in that moment that I chose. I stepped out in courage. And I said to my cousin Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. And it wasn't just that moment. It was every single time I went to the king. That first moment, when I went to him during that first banquet after that, when I went to him on that second banquet even after that, every single time I approached him, I had to step out in courage and the possibility of losing my life was right there on the front of my mind. I just want you to imagine what it's like to make that kind of a decision. Not a decision of what you're going to have for dinner, not a decision of what you're going to wear, but a decision of if I speak up or if I do this thing that I believe God is calling me to, do I do this with the possibility that I will lose my life? And each moment when the first time I approached the king to request the first banquet, to being at the first banquet requesting the second banquet, to being at the second banquet and requesting a new decree to be announced. Every single one of those moments was me choosing to take up courage, to lay down my life. And every time I did so, it built up my courage. It enlarged my capacity to trust God. It enlarged my capacity to say, okay, God, you've got me through this first step. I'm gonna take a second step. And with that second step, Getting through it enabled me to take that third step and the fourth step and the fifth step. And there's this remarkable experience when you step out in courage, even at the expense of your life, and you survive. You are emboldened. And yet you are emboldened not in your own strength. You are emboldened to just trust God even more, to have more faith in God. And as I stepped out in each of those conversations, each of those moments, my mind went back to all the times that Moses went before Pharaoh. My mind went back to all the times that Moses had to lead the nation of Israel, the steps backwards and the forwards. I saw the courage of my ancestors and I got to be part of that wondrous story that God is writing in God's people. And as I stepped out again and again, and as I withdrew to my quarters at night, I reflected on the faithfulness of God, 
The times where it seemed like God was silent in Abraham and Sarah's life when they couldn't have kids. The times in which the nation of Israel was enslaved for 430 years before Moses came onto the scene and God used Moses to set them free. You know, I looked back on our history as a people and I thought about the Assyrian Empire now with the Babylonian Empire. And perhaps if there's future times in which God seems silent, that God is powerfully working. When you step out in courage, we hear Esther say, remarkable things happen. This is where it leads me to the third and final question that I want to ask Queen Esther around this bonfire with this remarkable in her mind, this experience. And I ask her, was it worth it? And of course she smiles and she says, you know, on the surface, of course it was worth it because my people survived. Of course it was worth it because I survived. Of course it was worth it because Mordecai survived. But I want to share with you a, a deeper reason for why it was worth it. You know, this celebration, Purim, that my Jewish people celebrate every single year for two days, celebrating how the nation of Israel was saved from imminent death. I want you to catch that in the name, Purim is that small word, Pur, P-U-R. I want you to know that that roll of the dice was symbolic of all of our death when Haman rolled it in the beginning of our story. That roll of the dice was symbolic of the end, the end of our people, the end of God's provision, the end of hope, the end of God's purposes. And so when the whole of the Babylonian empire heard that poor had been rolled, a dice had been rolled, and that was the end of our life, the beginning of our destruction, you can imagine that the whole of the Jewish people saw that dice, saw poor as this thing of death. It was an instrument through which we were going to be annihilated. And yet in the midst of this working of God behind the scenes. And I wonder if it was God that kept King Xerxes up that night. This littlest thing, this thing that could so easily be overlooked that caused him to, to read the history books, to remember Mordecai, to set in emotion these things that happened that emboldened me to step out in courage, that ultimately led to the salvation of our people. I want you to know that we chose to name this festival Purim. This ironic twist to the events that were tra transpiring. And every time we say the word Purim, we're reminded of the thing that formerly meant death. The thing that was meant for destruction led to our salvation. Was it worth it? I want you to know that Purim is just a foreshadow for an even greater, the greatest saving event in human history. For us, it was a dice, a dice that meant death. 
But for all of humanity, we look at another object and it's called the cross. And the cross was the greatest executionary device the world had ever seen. A lot of other cultures used it, but it was the Romans who perfected it. And on that day when Jesus was led to the cross, many that day thought that it was the end of hope, the end of God's purposes, the end of God's plan, the end of a people. And in the same way, there was this movement of God behind the scenes and the greatest ironic twist for my life, we see that there is this movement behind the scenes that seems to be the greatest ironic twist in the history of humanity, that God used what seemed to be the greatest instrument of death to be the means of salvation, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. And for us, when we look at a dice... It's been redefined from death to life. And as you look at the cross, may we be reminded that that formerly meant an instrument of death. But it wasn't a death to God's plans. It was a death to sin. It was a death to all the brokenness of all of humanity. And so when we celebrate what Christ went to by choice, how he was crucified on our behalf, how he went into the grave and his three days went by, then burst forth from the tomb, rose to newness of life. He put an end and redefined that very instrument of death. And as I hear Esther saying these things, kind of step back for a moment. And I think about, you know, it is true. There, there's so much brokenness that we read in Scripture. And when we look out in this world, we see the same thing. And what we encounter in the book of Esther is that even when it seems like God is most silent... God is still just actively at work. And as we kind of sit in this moment, having heard the history of Esther, as we've heard her answer these three things, I, I, I want you, kind of while we're at the bonfire, let's not get up from that. I want you to imagine right now in your life, where do you feel like God is silent? You know, is it in your, your relationships? Is it in your work? Is it in your health? Is it in your finances? Where, where in your life right now does it seem like God is silent? And I want you just to acknowledge that. And I want to ask you that you would step out like Esther. I want to ask you that you would step out in courage. That while she was told, perhaps you've been called for such a time as this, that you would hear, perhaps you have been called for such a time as this. 
If it's God who is marvelously working behind the scenes and uses even someone like Esther, someone very imperfect, tremendous moral ambiguity when you get into the details of this story. If God could use Esther, God can use you. And God can use me. God doesn't just use the perfect. He uses the imperfect, but those who are willing to to step out in faith. All the circumstances were against her, and perhaps you might feel like all the circumstances are against you. And perhaps it's not that you feel like you have to lay down your life to step out in courage, but maybe it's something else that you have to lay down. I want to ask you right now, in a moment, we're going to pray, and I want to ask you, before we get up from the bonfire, that you would just take this in and that you would sit in this moment as I pray for you. And as I pray for you, I, 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 I hope that when this sermon wraps up, that you wouldn't just get up and go, that when we wrap up this time of worship, that you would just sit in this moment and say, God, I don't want to rush on to the next thing, but I want to sit in this moment because you have called me for such a time as this. And that the Spirit of God would lead you however the Spirit of God would. So let me pray for you. God, I thank you that in this moment, Though I can't see everyone who is hearing this prayer, I thank you, God, that you do. You know their thoughts. You know the week that they've just had. You know the week that they're about to have. You know the circumstances of their life. And even if they feel like you've been silent, God, I thank you that you're not. That you are powerfully working behind the scenes. And I pray for every single person who hears this prayer that they would know that they have a God who loves them, who will never leave them nor forsake them, who is calling to them in this moment to step out in faith, that they would know that for such a time as this, they've been called to your purposes and your plan. So Spirit of God, I pray that you would give them a boldness to step out, to ask for your help, to remember your faithfulness, to open up God's word and to be reminded of a life that can happen when we follow you and choose you, that they would have people in their life, kind of like how Mordecai was to Esther, that they would have people in their life who would encourage them, who would pray for them, who would lift them up, who would remind them that God has a plan and a purpose for their life. God, would you do a work that only you can do? And I confess that I I can't even imagine what you might do, and yet we entrust this moment to you, the hours ahead to you, the days ahead to you, our lives to you, knowing that what you start, you always finish. So may God, you take the things in our life that seem like death, and would you transform them to life for not only our flourishing, but for the flourishing of others. Jesus, it's in your powerful name we pray and we say together, amen.